Welcome to Euractiv's Tech Brief podcast. My name is Theo van Hartmann, your technology reporter. This week we look at the Slovak general elections and the EU's Digital Services Act enforcement challenges ahead. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website euractiv.com. This is Euractiv's Tech Brief podcast. Slovaks voted last Saturday on 30 September, but criticism abounded over the extensive abuse of political disinformation across online platforms, just as the Digital Services Act entered into force across the EU bloc. With this in mind, David Wilden, Head of Public Policy in Europe for YouTube, and Katarina Klinkova, Senior Research Fellow of the Center for Democracy and Resilience at the GlobSec Policy Institute are joining us to discuss their take on political disinformation in the Slovakian context and whether this is something we should fear at a broader EU level during next domestic and EU elections. In order to start the conversation, I would like to quote from a report from the Trust Lab, the organization spearheading work with the European Commission on the topic of disinformation. It stated some days ago that Slovakia appeared to be more vulnerable to large-scale disinformation campaigns compared to other nations in Central Europe, and that Facebook and YouTube were top platforms for messaging and social media in Slovakia. So, David, with this quote from the Trust Lab in mind, what did YouTube do to mitigate the risks during the Slovak general election campaign? Well, Theovain, thank you so much uh, for that question. And of course, this is such an important topic and I, I'm delighted to join you to discuss it. If I may, just to step back a little bit, um, I think it's important to understand that it's been for many years at YouTube that we've invested heavily in our policies and systems to ensure that we support elections and the democratic processes around the world. And that absolutely goes for the recent Slovak election. And we take a multi-layered approach to this. So we use a number of different products, policies, and levers, which if you don't mind, I'll just take you briefly through. So first of all, we remove content that violates our policies, and we always do that as quickly as possible. Our community guidelines, YouTube's rules of the road, if you like, apply to absolutely everyone and they do not allow for example misleading voters on how to vote or indeed uh, encouraging interference in the democratic process or any other elections misinformation that may oppose uh, oppose a risk of egregious harm now our misinformation policies also prohibit content that has been technically manipulated or doctored in a way that misleads users and may pose a risk of serious harm. Uh, And that's important given where some of the technology that we see around us is going. We also have policies on hate speech, on harassment and impersonation. These are general policies which apply 
to all elections. So it means, for example, we remove content that might threaten election workers, candidates or voters, and we remove content that encourages others to commit violent acts. And the way we do this is through a combination of people and technology to detect and review and remove the content as quickly as possible. And then the other part of what I described as a multi-layered approach is connecting people to high quality news and information. And that was particularly true in Slovakia. We recognize that YouTube is a platform that people come to, to understand what is going on, particularly at an election time. So when a, a major news event breaks in a country, we want to ensure that viewers can access authoritative information about that event. So in those cases, the breaking news shelf appears directly on the viewer's YouTube homepage. It, it features relevant videos from authoritative sources about news events of national importance. And then when viewers proactively search for news-related topics, which of course they often do during an election in particular, they will often see a top news section near the top of their search results, which raises relevant results from those authoritative voices like news organizations in the country. And we display relevant information panels at the top of search results and under certain videos, and specifically for those topics that we know are prone to misinformation. So during an election, we surface a number of election information panels. Uh, that will appear above the relevant search results and below relevant videos, and it connects the user to both the content from uh, the local authoritative sources. And, and in the Slovak case, um, we provided uh, information from the government authorities on how to vote, where to vote, and indeed the election results as they came through. All of that really leads me to, to say that our election efforts start a long time before polling day. Um, so it's not just something that we're looking at during the period of an election. And it's delivered by focused teams that work specifically on elections, and they are cross-functional. They include members of our intelligence desk, our trust and safety, and our product teams. And their job is to closely monitor real-time developments. And they're on it 24-7, so they can be ready to take action when they need to. Now, on disinformation specifically, coordinated influence operations are not allowed on YouTube. It doesn't matter what political viewpoints they support, they're not allowed. And we have a threat analysis group, part of Google, which uh, publishes public reports that you can read, and that's a dedicated team. They identify bad actors, and they help us terminate those channels and accounts, which include disinformation ca campaigns, regardless of whether it's during an election or not. Uh, one example, in the summer, we terminated 14 YouTube channels linked to Slovakia. That came about as part of our investigations from these people uh, into these types of disinformation campaigns. Indeed, looking beyond Slovakia, earlier this year, we terminated over 400 channels involved in coordinated influence operations linked to uh, the Russian state-sponsored internet research agency. So 
All of that goes to say that before, during, and indeed long after election time, our teams are vigilant and ready to take action. And we absolutely see this as a critical part of our responsibility. Um, I understand that your teams are, are vigilant and, and working end to end to tackle disinformation. Uh, yet, I would like to, to to quote the EU Commission Vice President Vera Jourova, who said on first of October that the EU Commission uh, respects the results of the Slovak uh, general elections, but, but that they were tainted by disinformation. Uh, for example, there was a fake video produced by artificial intelligence circulating in Slovakia some days before the election, showing a progressive Slovakia leader, uh, Michal Šimečka, uh, who was announcedly and fakely announcing a rise in beer prices. Uh, so maybe, um, Katarina, uh, in your view, to what extent did disinformation influence the election results? Teofana, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, well, did the disinformation have an impact on elections? Yes, it had. What was the impact? That's very actually hard to say because various information operations and disinformation were spread in Slovakia for years. You know, it's not just the case of the past uh, weeks of electoral campaign. Uh, however, in this electoral campaign, false and polarizing narratives, including hate speech, were part of electoral campaign of many political representatives, many political parties. They were voiced, uh, therefore, by uh, politicians themselves. Uh, the language of mainstream political parties got extremely radicalized, and many of them used uh, you know, narratives that were characteristic in the past only for the fired extremist. You know, you mentioned the AI-generated uh, video about the beer prices. Well, it was not just that AI-generated uh, video. Um, for example, during the moratorium, uh, a fake video, also AI-generated, um, was, was disseminated on social media platforms. It uh, allegedly brought a telephone conversation between Michal Šimečka, you know, the leader of the Progressive Slovakia Party, and investigative journalist Monika Todova. Um, and, you know, the video hinted that the upcoming elections are going to be manipulated, um, that uh, uh, Progressive Slovakia, along with other um, actors, made sure that they're going to be the winners of the upcoming elections, that... Uh, they will finally get into the parliament um, because during the past elections, they were not successful. So these narratives undermining the trust in public institutions and democratic processes, uh, narratives labeling various uh, public uh, representatives as foreign agents, as puppets of George Soros or puppets of CIA, uh, narratives undermining the trust in investigative journalism have been spread in Slovakia for years. Um, and, you know, it's very hard to say what is the impact on the current elections because those narratives have become part of mainstream political debate. You know, they were, uh, you know, you switch on the TV and it was right there. Um, in the past, we've seen such narratives being disseminated by a small number of political actors or disinformation actors, 
those narratives were at the edge of the information spectrum. Now they're at the core of it. Now you have mainstream political leaders uh, spreading them uh, themselves. Uh, and the impact, well, for a long time, we've been observing that Slovaks um, are the most vulnerable uh, in Central Europe when it comes to various conspiracy theories and disinformation. We see it uh, in the results of our own public opinion polls, uh, globsec trends that we conduct on an annual basis. For example, you know, only 40% of Slovaks think that Russia that invaded Ukraine is responsible for the war in Ukraine. Uh, and the rest of the respondents uh, believe various disinformation narratives that it was the West or it was the Ukraine uh, that was oppressing its Russian-speaking minority that is responsible for the war. Um, and you know, as David said, you know, of course, we've seen um, YouTube and other social media platforms uh, increasing their activities, and uh, uh, I'm very much supported of this. Uh, they have been very active in taking down problematic content prior elections. But, you know, those efforts need to be long-term efforts. Uh, it should not be just the case of uh, several weeks or months before the elections when social media platforms increase their uh, commitment, when they are much more responsive uh, in taking down the problematic content. Um, you know, um, while we've seen some positive numbers uh, on behalf of YouTube, um, in the past months, uh, there have been a project running um, titled SaveNet, which ran in 21 EU countries. And according to its finding, 100% of uh, the hateful content that was responded by Slovak trusted uh, flagger stayed on YouTube. So we see that... Um, the measures need to continue, the uh, good cooperation um, between the social media platforms and uh, public institutions and researchers uh, definitely need to continue because uh, countering disinformation and taking down hateful, problematic, and oftentimes illegal content shouldn't be uh, just a case of uh, you know, pre-election time. Thank you. So, David, looking off... For what uh, Katarina just said, um, what best practices did, did YouTube learn during this election election campaign, uh, knowing that the Digital Services Act, uh, the EU file uh, tackling illegal content online, has just been enforced uh, a month ago? And looking at the upcoming elections in, in Poland, um, do you believe online disinformation can ever be efficiently tackled? Katarina made a very uh, sensible point and, and an important point, which is obviously that this isn't just about election time. This is a, a, an effort and it needs to continue throughout the period um, before, during and after elections. And that's something that we, you know, we really are very focused on. And I, you know, I absolutely um, uh, uh, understand the concern around technically manipulated content, the two videos that um, that you and Katerina have referred to. Um, and we're very clear that any such technically manipulated content, uh, which includes election content that might mislead users and pose a serious risk of harm, is not allowed on YouTube. And in fact, those two videos that I think that you refer to, uh, we found them to be violative of our ads policies, uh, and they are not on YouTube. Um, we 
the way we approach this is we we enforce a, a manipulated content policy, which, as I've described earlier, use a mixture of machine learning and human review. Uh, and, and that's not a static process. We continue to improve on that work because we recognize that these threats can evolve and we need to stay ahead of them. Uh, and that's a really important part of our approach to uh, misinformation. Um, in the first half of this year, we actually removed over 16,000 videos uh, in the EU for violating YouTube's misinformation policies. And then more broadly, we're, we're continuing to invest to expand uh, and to improve upon our efforts around uh, election integrity. And, and we'll draw lessons from each election. That, that will include um, the recent one in Slovakia. So while we do take a global approach to election integrity work, context, local context is, is critical. Um, and that means that you know, we don't just take a view ourselves as YouTube. We have to take into account local context. We have to, and we do partner with outside experts where appropriate. That includes civil society, governments, academic institutions, uh, and the like. And, and indeed, uh, and in Slovakia, we have a, a long-standing relationship with Globesec. Uh, and indeed, I was um, my first trip to Bratislava earlier this year at the Globesec event where we discussed this. Um, with the local institutions and uh, and regulators. Of course, the upcoming elections in Poland, uh, Netherlands, and indeed next year's um, European parliamentary elections are very much top of mind, and they will be a continuation of, of our overall approach to protecting election integrity uh, around the world. Uh, and then just to give you a sense of our coverage, we have teams whose specific role is to continuously track developments to ensure that we have the latest information. Um, uh, and we've taken a lot of lessons over the years um, about local partnership and long-term approach to all of these issues. Uh, and indeed, policy development uh, and enforcement on the YouTube side means that we need to evolve our policies over time because the world moves quickly right in this area it, it's not static as i said before so we regularly review those policies to make sure that they uh, match and are, or are similar to the laws that govern civil society they reflect the changes that are occurring both on and off our, our platform uh, working in consultation with a range of internal and external experts and partners because look Let's be honest, we, we don't have all the answers. We're not pretending we do. And we also know that none of this work is ever going to be finished. It's a continuous effort that we've all got to be uh, working together on. Misinformation narratives move quickly. They're unpredictable. Uh, and they are making use of new technologies. So it's important that we use a range of tools to deal with them. We need to keep innovating to get ahead of the bad actors. And we need to keep on working in partnership with governments and civil society along the way. And looking at this, that fighting disinformation is a continuous effort uh, that is really has to uh, stay ahead because of the use of new te technology, 
keeping ahead also of innovation throughout time. Um, Katarina, I know you said in an interview by Disinfo Radar in September that civic engagement was, in your mind, the best way to counter disinformation. Um, but what does this mean in practice? Well, it follows on the ideas that were voiced just by David. You know, disinformation, as it was mentioned, is a whole of society problem. It impacts all segments of our societies. And with that, we need whole of society approaches to tackle it. So um, it's the EU, national governments, platforms, non-governmental uh, organizations, and citizens themselves that have a role to play in the system if we want to reduce the amount of problematic, false, or hateful content in our information spaces. And with DSA, the regulation of social media platforms is at the center of this. Um, uh, but, you know, this engagement uh, of, of, and this engagement of informed citizens means that uh, it is necessary to also build critical thinking and media literacy of citizens or social media platforms users. The system cannot, for example, solely rely on several fact-checkers. For example, for years in Slovakia, Meta had one person working as a Facebook fact-checker covering over uh, 3.5 million um, you know, Slovak Facebookers, Slovak market, and that kind of system is not sustainable. Users themselves need to be able to recognize disinformation, hate speech, or other problematic content and should be able to actively report that content to social media platforms and other designated uh, institutions. And this is what we see in DSA. DSA empowers researchers, empowers uh, civil society organization, and empowers users by, for example, having new obligations, including users uh, facing transparency of online advertisement, external audits, provision of data to researchers, or user choice not to have recommendations based on profiling. All these measures need to be, however, very properly explained to citizens, users themselves, so that they can take uh, informed decisions on uh, what kind of, let's say, uh, social media platforms they want to be, what kind of social media um, environment uh, they want uh, to be in. Um, Therefore, you know, stakeholders should aim also to support factual, verified content on social media platforms and support investigative journalists, enable access to data to researchers from non-academic institutions, because in Central Europe, it is predominantly non-academic institutions uh, that are driving the research. They have to be vetted. Uh, that's not, not contested at all. Um, but uh, uh, most of the research that is being driven um, in this region of the European Union is done by researchers as myself that is not affiliated with any kind of academic institution. So that's why um, we believe, you know, in these measures, uh, whether it's the empowerment of users, users being able to, you know, very effectively uh, mark uh, and help uh, thus take down problematic content and then uh, provide relevant data to various stakeholders so that we see the impact of policies uh, taken uh, by social media platforms and policies taken also by uh, other stakeholders. So, David, what is your take on, on what uh, Katarina just said? Um, do you believe YouTube corporate social responsibilities to educate its users? 
Well, I just want to say that I think, you know, YouTube totally recognises our responsibility um, in this space. It's a platform that people want to come to to learn about the issues they care about, to, to find community with others, and indeed to get involved in civil society. So we, we recognise that um, NGOs, campaigners, individuals on a wide range of issues they rely on on the global platform they have through youtube uh, and they want to bring their causes to the largest viewing audience in the world that's what we are and of course and in their own countries youtube really is all about it's about civic engagement um, uh, and it thrives on on our platform but it's only possible um, if we have a long-term commitment to invest in products and policies that deal with harmful content, and at the same time, that help connect users with high quality news and information. And without that commitment, YouTube as a platform will lose its utility, will lose its value to society. And as part of that, we also agree that prevention is a, a kind of critical part of dealing with this information. Um, and so we're always looking at ways to empower viewers to uh, assess, to understand the content uh, and the context of the content that they watch uh, and share online. So one good example of what we've tried to do in leaning into this space is we launched um, the Hit Pause campaign on YouTube. This is uh, a series of short clips that run before a video uh, on our platform um, uh, that help viewers spot and evaluate potential misinformation. It's designed to educate viewers on some of the tactics that the bad actors that we've just been talking about might uh, use when they try to deceive you. Uh, that might range from using emotional language or the cherry picking uh, of information which we have seen uh, and all of this that we do is designed to help viewers learn those vital media literacy uh, skills uh, and i'm pleased to say the campaign is live in slovakia and across the eu and uh, actually in the first half of this year the hit pause campaign in slovakia received over 2.4 million impressions. So we're very pleased with the impact that it's having uh, in Slovakia. But we'll continue to explore any new and innovative ways that we can find to help reduce harmful content and protect the YouTube community. And we'll partner obviously with the external NGOs and the experts along the way, including in our uh, campaigns around helping people understand uh, misinformation. Okay, um, thank you very much. Um, Katarina, um, looking at this discussion about educating, empowering viewers, um, do you believe the Digital Services Act regulation that we've been talking about goes far enough? Do you believe the new Slovak government could prevent or stop the, the enforcement of a DSA in uh, Slovakia? I don't think that the, the newly elected government 
um, will be able to stop the enforcement of Digital Services Act. You know, Digital Services Act is a EU legislation. Um, definitely, it needs to be incorporated into our own legislation. And uh, what we see is that Slovakia has a new media law, which was adopted in the beginning of uh, August 2022, that um, already envisions a lot of procedures that are to be um, adopted or to be uh, implemented uh, with the Digital Services Act. So in this sense, uh, there should be, let's say, a smooth uh, transition uh, to the DSA when it comes to Slovakia. Um, So I don't think that the upcoming, yeah, as I said, I I don't think that the upcoming government would uh, somehow try to block the Digital Services uh, Act. It will be interesting to see uh, who would be the Digital Services Act coordinator because um, that's the place where some of the you know, state capture or state interference or attempt to control certain proce- processes could be, um, you know, could take place. Um, this is not just the case of, of Slovakia. This could be the cha- case of, I don't know, Poland, also Hungary. But uh, yeah, I don't think that Slovak government or upcoming Slovak government uh, would have a power to influence uh, the enforcement of DSA in, in our country. I see. And um, David, in your view, do you believe that the DSA uh, also is going fine off when it comes to tackling this information online? On the DSA, we're certainly working very closely with um, the European Commission to ensure that we comply, uh, that our services and our products uh, comply appropriately with the DSA. And we're um, going to continue to update our processes to empower users in new ways, uh, to give them more information uh, and context around the decisions we make, uh, including um, through the transparency reporting that is uh, required in the DSA. Um, At the end of uh, this month, uh, the first DSA transparency report um, will be published. And um, uh, I believe it will show how we have been working uh, diligently to address harmful content on YouTube across dozens of countries uh, and indeed dozens of languages, uh, including Slovak. Um, We've got a lot of um, uh, people in Google, indeed thousands, working around the world um, in a range of non-English language expertise on our content moderation teams, including in Slovak language. We have clear expertise there. Um, And Uh, As I've mentioned earlier, we have these uh, automated machine learning systems, which uh, contribute in a very important part of this work, uh, which flag videos that violate policies in multiple languages, including Slovak. So the DSA transparency report, um, which will be out uh, the end of October, the end of this month, it will build on on our long-term commitment um, to protecting viewers from harm on YouTube and our commitment to regularly publishing data on our efforts so that we can be held to account. It's worth bearing in mind that the transparency report under the DSA 
uh, will be the first one in October, but it's not the first one for YouTube. We started our own quarterly transparency report in 2018, uh, and the DSA one will build out on the data that we've already shared, and we'll continue to do that. Um, thank you very much. Um, maybe, as you mentioned, the transparency reports, um, could you tell us how diligently, as you said, uh, did YouTube work? What will we learn in this transparency report that will be out in 20 days or so? Yes, you will learn. Um, uh, you will, it will build on what we've already published in, the, in, the, in our own transparency reports. Um, and it will tell you more about how uh, we go about moderating content on the platform, including in uh, a wider range of markets uh, across the EU. So um, I think the transparency reports are an important building block for uh, DSA uh, and one that we um, are looking forward to complying with because we do believe that in the end, it is transparency that's going to help Uh, people understand how we approach uh, dealing with these sorts of topics, and that's that's good for everybody. Uh, it, it's good it's good for um, our users who can see more about how we're applying policies towards to keep them safe, uh, and obviously it will be good for researchers, as Katerina referred, who will be able to access more information, um, including through our own dedicated. Um, Uh, portal, so RAPI, which allows people to access, accredited researchers to access more data um, uh, from YouTube. It will allow them to understand more about how we approach these things. And, and look, I think we believe it's good for YouTube because it's important to us that people understand how we go about approaching these things. These are big societal challenges that matter to a lot of people and they matter to us. Uh, and we want uh, people to understand uh, how we think about these challenges, how we go about addressing them. And indeed, as I said earlier, we recognize that these are not static approaches as, as the challenges of misinformation change. We need to be prepared to evolve our approach. And we can only do that by working with others, with third parties, with civil society. Uh, and we all need to know where we're starting from. So transparency will give us that. And looking at transparency, I think, uh, Katerina, you have a position of your own on the fact that uh, not only researchers uh, should have access to uh, data um, by online platforms, but also civic engagement organization. Well, at the moment, the uh, DSA and... Uh, The framing of the DSA or the framing of the Code of Practice on Disinformation mostly talks about the academic institutions. And as I tried to say uh, before, in um, Central European countries, most of the research uh, which is being conducted on disinformation, on uh, you know, takedown of uh, problematic content, is actually not being driven by academic institutions in these respective countries, by, uh, but by uh, think tankers, uh, representatives of civil society organizations. So um, for us, the alarms usually go on if people talk about only vetted academic researchers Um, getting the access to the data and being able to analyze the impact 
uh, and efficiency of the policies of social media platforms that were taken. So this is one of the things that uh, for for us, for me as a researcher, for us as an organization is one of the priorities so that we make sure that um, organization as us, researchers as us, um, from civil society organization will be able to get the data. Uh, but the, the discussions are ongoing. Uh, you know, we are open to vet, being vetted. Uh, we are open to having to go through the vetted process. We just don't want that um, option to be completely closed down and uh, focused on the academic um, institutions. Looking at this comment, David, uh, would YouTube be open to, to release data to not only vetted academic researchers? I think we are uh, committed to complying with the obligations on us under the DSA. I don't think it's for us to determine um, how and who um, is is vetted. So we'll continue to focus on what we need to do and what we should do um, under our obligations. Um, and I think that you know the access to data is uh, a vital element to to all of this. The way that the DSA uh, works is something that we, you know, we are um, very much engaged with. We need to ensure that what we're providing in terms of access to data um, is a level playing field for all, but it's not for us to determine, I think, um, uh, the decisions about who accesses and who doesn't. Understood. Thank you very much, David. Thank you very much, uh, Katarina. That is all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Evi Kiori. I am Theofan Hartmann and thank you for listening. <laughs>